It's reboot wheat. Wheat? Wheat? Reboot wheat. Get moving away from corn. Going into wheat <laughs> yes. now. And welcome to episode five of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And hello. And we've got a lot to get through as usual on this show. Of course, we're talking about the big film that everyone's talking about, including on the BBC last night. I heard one of the, you know, those very serious critique shows talking about this film. Dora the Explorer. Yeah, I mean, what a film. I mean, you know, we've been waiting for a Dora film to come to the big screen for ages. And here it is. No, no, no. We joke. We'll be talking about Joker. But first, Andy has been uh, scouring the world of the internet, the World Wide Web, bringing you some of the latest news, gossip and information just for you. Andy, what you got for us? Well, I've got, we've got some nostalgia in this week. Inspector Gadget. Really? The 1980s cartoon. That was made into a film with Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick, um, forgettable. Decades ago, it was uh, Rupert Everett was the villain. Yeah, it Why was. Do I know these. It things? was mindless, like throwaway entertainment, good but, for families, but never really tapped into the core of like the heart. Who of gadget the, really is? Yeah. There's now a new version of the film. Of course, there is. Being it's reboot brought week. to the big screen. Dan Lynn and Jonathan Eyrick who produced the recent Aladdin film, they've jumped on board to bring the live-action take on Inspector Gadget for Disney. We, we kind of touched on this the other week, didn't we, about, about films that have been rebooted that are a generational thing, or characters that have been rebooted that are generational. And Inspector Gadget, as you, you said... It's the 80s. It's the 80s and the 90s. I'm slightly older. You wouldn't believe it. <laughs> but uh, I'm slightly older, so it means nothing to me. And it's a bit like if they were to bring back, I don't know, the Clangers movie. It's, it's I think it's... I think it's older guys in an office are going, do you remember how good Inspector Gadget was? Who owns that IP now? Let's have it. And and completely forgetting, my, my kid would never have a clue about Inspector Gadget. Troll Hunters, he's going to be rebooting that in, in 20 years. Have you seen that, by the way? Guillermo del Toro's series not, no. on Netflix. Great. I let him watch it so I can watch it. That's the trick of good parenting, introducing movies. But I think I think there's a, an issue with bringing on these characters who we think are still sellable or are still prolific in, in today when, to be perfectly honest, the generations have moved on. But if it's a good film and it's done well, uh, who would you cast as Inspector Gadget? Well, I'd cast Ryan, Ryan Reynolds as anything these days. Yeah, you've got a man crush there. I've got a huge man crush on that. You know, I was actually going to say Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> there you go. And well, he's, got, he's got that kind of charisma and wit. Yeah. Or just bring Matthew Broderick back. <laughs> yes, he could be the villain this time. Uh, there you go. Uh, Ryan Reynolds, if you're listening, uh, we put you forward for Inspector Gadget. And you could sort of do it Deadpool-y as well. And, yeah. You know, and, and have Break lots, the false wall. Have lots of jokes. Joke to the camera. About the appendages that he can he can fit onto his, onto his arm well, that sort of thing whether they're going to stick it as um, keep going for the family friendly route or not is a bit unsure at the moment but Saturday Night Live writers Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel are penning the script which suggests that they're going to be trying to do a lot, a lot of in jokes for the adult crowd mm. within the in that Saturday it, night, it's going to have to be because you, you know they've uh, got to grab the attention of yeah. us people. If it's made to look as though it's just going to be too kiddified, then the people who they're clearly wanting to aim at, i.e., the people who know who Inspector Gadgets are, will be alienated. So they need to try and get that balance between them, so that maybe our generation can introduce a new generation to this character and hopefully get the new generation to understand what we loved about that character in the same way. Do you talking of which you heard that Kevin Smith's bringing about He Man? 
for Netflix. Yeah, I heard about that. He's producing that's, that's uh, an animated excited. version. I don't think it's going to be sort of uh, set in a store and He-Man's like behind the counter now. But I think, you know, from what I hear, it's going to be re- very reverent to, to the character of He-Man. And again, it's, uh, it's, it's those producers bringing back stuff that they liked I mean, as kids. There was a pretty solid like revisit of He-Man as an animated series in the early part of this century. Oh, was it? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it had the look and the feel of the old one, but with a more structured story and none of that, like, cut, cutting at the end to, like, the lesson we've learned today, Orko, is... See, that's what I hated about yeah, it. Yeah, it, it took away that and just had it as, like, a, a continuous story set over episodes in the way that animations are these days. I mean, it was similar to, like, the Thundercats one from about ten years ago. Which Missed was that. very short-lived. The animation style was beautiful, but it was different to the original. Right. So people were alienated by it and didn't jump on. I jumped on it. I'm so glad I did because it told, retold the origins of the Thundercats in a continuous story. So right. It wasn't just like single episode, single episode, single episode. It was like an ongoing journey. It's really solidly made, solidly mm, produced. Never found its audience. I've got a bit of news for us. Uh, the full cast for Kenneth Branagh's uh, Poirot sequel, Death on the Nile, has been announced. Oh, I'm, I'm imagining, um, given the history of the character that we're going to see some stellar names in there. Well, it, I know it's carrying on with this theme. I mean, Murder on the Orient Express, all versions have had uh, big names attached to it, and he's, and he's filmed it. I really liked Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, I mean, the, the only drawback that that film had is that we already knew the story, yeah. and so there was no real surprises. Yeah, But yeah. that doesn't diminish the fact that it was a beautifully made film with a cast who were really getting into their roles and clearly enjoying their roles. Cast to die for. Uh, and and, it's, and it's, I liked his his approach to Poirot. I liked his moustache. The moustache was fabulous. <laughs> I would spend all my life growing that moustache. I'd spend my, all my life trying to find a moustache like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a great cast. He's pulled together. Everybody wants to work with... Uh, just one of those guys people want to work with. And he's movie star royalty for this country. Yeah. I mean, he's done some duds. But yeah, great cast. Annette Benning, Russell Brand, Dawn French, Gil Gadot, Army Hammer. He needs a hit. Desperately, Army Hammer. Uh, he's still everybody's choice for Batman, but I, I don't see it myself. Uh, Rosie Leslie, Jennifer Saunders, uh, Letitia Wright. So um, a lot of people we know from from uh, superhero genres. But if I remember the original, uh, the Albert Finney version, you know, again, great cast. Looking forward to it. Yeah. If he does as well as he does on Murder, then of course he will. There's no doubt about it. Spend the budget wisely. Yeah. Use it in the right way and just tell a well-told story. Because let's be honest, those t- t- stories, the Prado stories... Are really good stories. They're really yeah. good mysteries and whodunits. And there's a reason why they keep getting remade and remade. No one ever complains about a remake of a Poirot story or like any of Agatha Christie's materials because you just accept that it's worth bringing that back to the screen again. They 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 stay very true. You have to stay true, and I think you can set them. You can jump time that they work. It's like Holmes. Sherlock Holmes for me works best in, in Victorian England. Yeah. And this is to take nothing away than the BBC version, which I absolutely adored. I thought it was a fantastic series. I thought if you're going to do Holmes in present day, that's the way to do it. But for me, I, I like Conan Doyle's references. I like the period. I like period detective mysteries. But if you're going to do it well, the stories work. It's like why Shakespeare can still work. Yeah. Because the stories are truly told, beautifully scripted, uh, beautifully anointed stories. It doesn't matter when when you set them. And and Poirot's an interesting character. And he gave Poirot something that I'd never seen before. He gave him a, a dimension I'd never seen before. And can't wait. So moving on to No Time to Die. The new Bond film. The new Bond film. We finally had a poster. Ooh, great. They started filming, I've noticed. My problem with the poster, and it's been a problem with the posters through all of these 
like Daniel Craig ones is they, they kind of lack the dynamic of yeah. the classic Bond posters. The classic Bond posters was always like a composite image of like, you know, Bond with a gun and a girl yeah. next to him, like either with a gun, etc. The backdrop of like San Francisco or a Tahiti Beach or like wherever the location is going to be. And like some explosions and bits of yeah. action. And I love that old like 70s, 80s, well 60s, 70s and 80s style of poster making. And I feel that they've gone a bit too like... Clean and photoshoppy. To be honest with you. Yeah. Because um, the Bourne for posters were very much a case of, oh look, there's Matt Damon. Very brutal. Oh look, there's Matt Damon with a target on him. Yeah. Oh look, there's Matt Damon with a target behind him. Ooh, look what we've done there. And they kind of tried to copy that style with the Bond ones. Do you think that's the same across movie posters in general now? You do see a lot of themes on movie posters that as soon as something snaps someone's attention, every movie suddenly copies that style. I mean, look at your your romantic comedies of the Love Actually kind of stable. Yeah. But they all have that exact same white background with a red stripe on it and then just images of the cast across them. Or two characters leaning. Matthew McConaughey <laughs> went through a lot of leaning, didn't uh, yeah, he? With he the, was always he was leaning back to back with someone. Yeah, things, uh, lots of leaning, the pretty woman style. I, I think the art of... And I think great movie posters are still being made. And when they do come along and they are... They stand out and, and you, you realise them is when they're not just Photoshop's monstrosities. <laughs> and and I love the Marvel films. God praise Kevin, Kevin Feige, you know. But for um, a comic book company, ultimately, and Disney... Their posters are very posters are, are, you know, are Photoshop monstrosities a lot the, of the time. The Spider-Man ones in particular. Yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, they must have used the Disney marketing team and not the Sony marketing team because Sony tend to do better marketing yeah. when it comes to posters and a bit more creative. Whereas Disney seems to be just going, like you like say, going for the just composite images. And, and talking of Bond, my reference point for Bond, it wasn't the first Bond I ever, I ever saw. The first one I ever saw in the cinema was Diamonds Are Forever. But I went to see Live and Let Die, and I will never forget the poster. It yeah. was just a visceral amount of colour. <laughs> you know, it had Bond in the middle, it had the playing cards, it had Jane Seymour looking super hot. All those characters built around Bond, beautifully painted. And, and I... That's a poster for me. That's yeah. a cinema poster. Uh, it has to, it, to some extent, it had to be bigger than the film to 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 attract it. And you know, I kind of miss those big posters. I'm uh, yeah, I've seen it. I'm looking forward to it. I've really enjoyed the Daniel Craig run on it. And we talked about it a few weeks. Who would replace him? I still think he should have ended at the last movie because driving away was the perfect ending. And well, it's where they're going to pick up with the story because yeah. he's now living in ret- retirement in Jamaica, and apparently it's Felix who shows up and right. asks him Jeffy to help. Wright rescue a kidnapped scientist, putting Bond on the trail of a new mysterious villain with dangerous new top technology. And that's why there's a new 007. And it's uh, a, a black actor playing, a, a lady 007. It's not replacing Bond. It's replacing 007. Just Get take, it right, kids. Just taking the double O from it. Yeah, and if he's retired, of course, they're not just going to leave it until he hopefully walks back in. He's retired. That's why there's an 007 spot. Waiting to be filled. Get over it, kids. Nice to see, um, you know, Ray Fiennes is back as them. Yeah, I, th- I think the cast is great. And I think Madeline what I Swans. really like about what they've done is they've built up a cast of characters. The Madeline Swan character is back, played by Leah Seydoux. We'll, we'll say yes for now. We'll yeah. if anything Naomi like my... Harris is once again alongside us. The again, made money, penny. made money penny into a character rather than just a cipher. And like you say, Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. We'll be back as Felix. It's still only rumoured that Christopher Waltz is going to be Blofeld. Mm, Nothing has been confirmed. I would like him to return because I feel that it didn't really resolve the Blofeld kind of storyline. We got to see the 
the creation of the Blofeld character scarred on the face yeah. by the end of that last film. But I don't feel it really gave him a chance to be a true menace. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, yes. And, you know, if this is going to be Daniel Craig's last outing, then it would make sense for it to be a climax with him going up against Blofeld for the final time. And he's one of those characters, again, uh, that works within Bond that has been recast numerous times, even within one actor's run on it. You know, there, there were numerous Blofeld. Telly Savalas yep. stands out for that. Uh, Donald Pleasance. Donald Pleasance, definitely. Fantastic. Yeah, I hope so. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm, I'm a real sucker for this, for this Bond series. Did I tell you I had a strange dream that uh, Jeffrey Wright was playing Commissioner Gordon and then we talked about it on the show, or did we? I, I'm, I'm convinced I've had that dream as well. I'm sure that we at least name-dropped him. Um, when we were talking about Joker news on the last... Yeah, because we were talking about Batman Jonah news. Hill. We were yeah. talking about Jonah Hill, like what character he's going to be, and I'm sure that we name-dropped If he can make Felix lighter an interesting character, then and what he, what he can do with Kamish. Yeah. The Kamish is... I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, you know, I've, I've got my Westworld pops on the wall next to me, and I just can't help but notice, like, so his character from Westworld, Westworld sat so up there, like, staring at me. Moving on. You know, spinning off from the Bond news, uh, we mentioned that the posters kind of emulated the Bourne. Well, the Bourne series is now getting expanded out via a TV series. Yeah, um, which apparently they cannot, they can't mention in the series Jason Bourne. And it's Treadway, isn't it? Yeah. Treadway was the organisation behind uh, the Jason Bourne super soldier storylines. <laughs> it, it was very Captain America when I watched it again. That would have been an interesting way for Cap to go. And funny enough, this has been a week of, of, of TV series, not as much movie news no, as we used a, to have. There's a lot of TV news, but it's that time of year when all the new shows are getting like concepts put around them. They're planning for the mid-season like switchovers, then they're planning for like the late summer, what's going to be new next year. So it's no surprise that Newsworth yep. is dominated by it. But you know, with, with regards to the Bourne one, I mean, the, the TV series is going to expand much like Legacy did on the whole concept of that world. Producer Ben Smith has also dropped some hints that there's another film, because he's hinted that the new show will have big connections to the new film. As he quotes himself, I mean, we are definitely working on another film. What we're doing with that? Will there be connected tissue in terms of, are we all existing within the same world and universe? Absolutely. The details of that are still under wraps. So whilst he's confirmed there's a new film, he can't say what, who, when, why and how? You see, again, it's it's the right time to walk away from that character for Matt Damon was at the end of the third one. Yeah, there was no need to bring him back for Jason Bourne. It was an okay movie. There was nothing wrong with it. It felt as though we didn't need it. We didn't find anything else new about the character that we didn't already know. It worked in those three films, and that's why it didn't have the big impact on on the box office because we'd explored that world and we'd explored Jason Bourne, and we 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 needed to see. And the interesting way to go would be kind of the old man Logan, the Logan style of, of, of Jason Bourne. And I still think that that's what, you know, Sean Connery could have done. Yeah. And come back and play Bond one last time as old man Bond. That would have been interesting. Instead of saying never, never say never again. Old man Bond sounds like a cockney knees up. Song. He does. Oh, I've got a old case man Bond. I saw the postcard. Chaz and Dave playing on the piano. <laughs> if you do want to contact us about any movie news, you can reach us on Twitter via at Filmfile UK. Keep coming in with information. As I said, lots and lots of uh, uh, TV trailers. Snowpiercer is out as a TV series on TNT. I think it is in the states. I don't know well whether we'll get it over here. But it looks great. Apparently, it's going back more to the original French graphic novel. Yeah. Uh, as well as tying in in a similar sort of style to the uh, to the to the great movie that came out a couple of years ago. We starred Chris Evans. 
but there are there's a trailer out there which is this beautifully animated trailer which sort of tells the story of how Snowpiercer and the world came to be. So that's pretty good. There's a new trailer out for Star Trek Picard. Not had a chance to catch that new trailer yet. I, I'm just excited for the whole series. Yeah, so. a lot of familiar faces coming back. Uh, Jonathan Frakes is returning as Riker. Interesting to see it. back. Yeah, um, really interesting to see where it goes after this. Um, he's, he's one of those actors, isn't he? Uh, that he, he brought so much pathos and depth to Picard that, that um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing him work again. Uh, and the BBC trailer for War of the Worlds, have you seen that one? I've not, no. Um, I, I'm excited because I, I, I'm a big fan of H.G. Wells's writing and I've enjoyed to some degree pretty much every interpretation of that on the big screen, including that rather weak TV series from like the 90s. Ooh, yeah, I remember that. Um, which basically tried to tell a continuation of the story in modern day and it was it was, it was was cheesy, but I found myself compellingly watching it. I just loved that whole mankind has been invaded by beings from Mars or whatever they decide to do and mankind can't win. But, you know, in a great HG Wells story, it's uh, basically... Bacteria destroys them because they've never encountered the bacteria yeah, that we've become immune to. Great storytelling. Fantastic story. But, uh, um, it, you know, in recent years, we had Spielberg's modern day interpretation, which a lot of people are very dismissive of, but I think it was powerful. Yeah, I, it I think just fell apart in the, the last 10 minutes, really. Yeah, there's some moments in that film that are truly chilling and truly, like, horrific, and I think it, he captured the essence of, of post-9-11, didn't he? But, you know, I've been wanting to see a, a good adaptation set within, like, the era that the Wells story was... Well, you'll be happy to know, from the look of the trailer, it looks like a period piece. Yeah, because... And I remember when it was first announced, like they said, the BBC wanted to do, like, an authentic adaptation. Like, so we get to see, like, the point of view from the narrator of the story as, like, he slowly researches and slowly encounters elements and how that affects the world around him. So I've got to check out the trailer because I am excited about the concept of it. I want the BBC to do well. The BBC are doing some solid like adaptations recently. I mean, on the horizon, we've got the His Dark Material series, which yeah. is being co-producing with HBO. And they did uh, uh, Good Omens. Yeah. The Neil Gaiman project. Again, like a co-production. I, 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 it was with Amazon, wasn't it? Directly with Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, a great adaptation of, yeah, it, it meandered around some elements of the book and removed a few things. Yeah, it just wasn't as funny in. as I wanted but, it to um, be. But it, it captured the essence of like, I think it captured more the essence of Gaiman than Pratchett. Yes, it, I'll, I'll, I'll totally agree with you. And, and I really thought, thought everything about it, I liked the casting, I liked the style of it, um, I liked all the elements of it. I missed the humour that Terry Pratchett brought to it. And with Neil Gaiman writing the script, it, it felt as though it was uh, it hung on too much to the book, but it lost that humour. And I, it's one of the... The only books I've ever read where I was sat on a, I was sat on a tube in London, I was reading it, I was laughing out loud funny which will bring us round to Joker in a little while. But so nice to see the BBC starting to like move away from like standard period dramas and things like that and finally getting back to doing what BBC used to do all those decades ago by introducing us to fantasy concepts, mm-hmm. science fiction concepts, far out there kind of concepts. Great. Can't wait. Yeah, we're kind of missing, aren't we, at the moment? I mean, we've got Doctor Who coming back, but we're kind of missing the, the, the BBC used to do great horror. People forget, you know, the the uh, Nigel Neal stuff that they did, you know, the Quatermass series and, you know, Stone Tapes and things like that. The BBC did great horror. And I think there's there's a lacking a great British horror show that could be a period piece, could be, you know, but just something. And, and we've got, a, um, you know, we get these 
Mark Gattis produced things usually coming up at Christmas. I'm a great Christmas ghost story. It's part of the my family tradition of, of, of having Christmas ghost stories. But I do miss the, the good BBC horrors. I think there's there's room for that. A quick light and throwback to a bit of news that we've done before, which was you know the current resurgence of Eddie Murphy with him doing Coming to America. Yeah. There's now been further news on his future of his career, which seems to be a throwback to the past of his career because he's now been announcing Beverly Hills Cop 4. Really? Yeah. it's Apparently it's been in development on and off for over the past decade. Brett Ratner was attached at one point. It was then like... He's not going to be making any films for some time, is he, Brett Ratner now? Then it was looked to be like a TV series following the son of Axel Foley. But now it's been retooled into a film again with new writers and a new setup. And Murphy, who's been, you know, doing... Dolomite is my name, which is coming to Netflix, and also I. Have you seen the trailer for America? Again, I'm used to the trailer. It looks absolutely looks really funny. Uh, it's apparently it's a true story about a, a guy who who creates a character and uh, and starts to create a movie around it in the time of the uh, uh, black exploitation movies. Uh, you know the superflies and your shafts. It it looks very funny. I really want to see Eddie Murphy come back. I want to see him come back and come back with something powerful to prove that Eddie Murphy was once at one time. And and kids, you, you know, younger listeners, you're not going to believe that because you'll have probably seen him in some really atrocious he was family. He was family. The name. He was the funniest guy on the planet at one point. Well, yeah, in his own words, uh, yeah. Beverly Hills Cop 4 is what we're doing after coming to America. We're doing Beverly Hills Cop, and then the plan is to get back on stage and do stand-up. That's what I'll be doing mostly, is stand-up. These movies and Saturday Night Live, it's kind of like I'm looking at it as a bookend. If I decided I wanted to stay on the couch forever, and ended it on a funny note. So he's getting back to his roots. And I'm excited about seeing him go back to stand-up, because he was biting Oh, he was he was incredible. And, and you, you forget how, how young he was when he, when he started on... You know, you look back at Eddie Murphy live and Raw. He was just a, a very, very young man, barely, you know, into his twenties. And he had that sudden rise to fame, uh, a ridiculous rise to fame, uh, hit after hit after hit. Uh, and we, we've all got one great Eddie Murphy uh, movie. I mean, the first Beverly Hills Cop was fantastic. You know, that anarchy of that of that character coming to America, trading places. There was hit after hit. And then he started down the the family film, and that sort of put his career into into a bit of a into a tailspin. They were still big hits, but the biting, clever Eddie Murphy that we we'd seen in the past forty eight hours. When you see him in forty eight hours, he rules the screen, uh, and as a secondary character, and he's he just proved they had that star potential. I really like to see Eddie Murphy do something that that is is funny that isn't a I mean, I hope it's Beverly Hills Cop 4. I'm not holding my breath on it. Beverly Hills Cop 3, directed by John Landis, who I really like, was a bit weak. Did you Do you remember it? Have you seen Beverly Hills Cop 3? Yes, uh, the theme park. Yeah. Do you uh, remember the cameo? No. George Lucas. Oh. George Lucas cameoed in <laughs> Beverly Hills Cop 3. The beard himself. Uh, yeah, so welcome back, Eddie Murphy. You have fantastic uh, screen presence. It'd be nice to see you do something edgy. It'd be nice to see you do something like a 48 hours. Don't do a 48 hours three, but something like a 48 hours where you can be foul-mouthed and funny and uh, and have that big screen presence again. So welcome back, Eddie Murphy. We approve. Flashing back to, we've done news in the past about Kevin Smith with his Jane Silent Bob's reboot, reboot. which is on our doorstep. It's not far away now. But it's been confirmed over the past week or so that Clerks 3 is back on. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith. I I, I was one of the 
the people at the time who just thought he, he'd, he'd hit that. He had a great voice. And when Clerks came out, I went to see it, uh, and it was a uh, uh, the art cinema here in in our hometown, and it was packed. It was rammed. Um, loved Chasing Amy. I think Chasing Amy is is a perfect film. There, it's the the Kevin Smith film that I always go back to. It's funny. It's it's got that humour that runs through all his film, and it had pathos, and it and it said something. And I like Dogma, but after Dogma, it sort of went uh, astray. I've got a lot of a love skew. for Jalen Jalen Sound Bob Strikes Back. I yeah. love I love the um, his whole mocking of his whole, own films throughout it. it. It's a very fourth wall breaking film. And I had fun watching it, and I rewatched that only about six months ago. And I still have fun, like right. the little elements. But that was basically a fan servicing film, yes, to be the fact it was intended to be the last one of that whole like askew universe ones before he moved on to other things like Jersey Girl, which, Red, which Red I've, State. I've got some love for Jersey Girl because I, I could kind of relate to the like the the parental relationship going on in there mm. and like all the family issues, and so I, I talked to it quite well. Red State, solid film. I think Dear, yeah, really? Yeah. I, it went astray for me. Um I, I, I found like the performances like powerful. I would have loved to have seen his original intention for the ending. Yes. Where it was actually going to be the four horsemen of the apocalypse yeah, right the down. Of God, and, wasn't it? That, yeah. was, that they hear. But I think that that little nugget of twist at the end, like with the like the bells start chiming, and you think, oh my god, it's all happening. It's just mm. that something else is going on. And I, I love the, the character drama within there. There's the guy in it who plays the preacher, Michael Parks. Michael Parks, yeah. Who, he has like five minutes monologues in it that I was just captivated with because I, I think that was benefited a lot by his presence on screen in anything. is always quite captivating. He, was always he passed away great. recently, didn't he? Michael Parks, I think on. I believe so, yeah. Mm. Melissa Leo's in it. She's a great screen presence. There's a lot I liked about Red State. I, th- I thought the setup was great. It was it was horrific. It it didn't stay true to itself for me. Uh, and interesting, no character made it out alive, did yeah. they? Uh, which I th- I think in a horror movie, of course not everyone's got to get to the end. But I think you've got to have somebody you hold on to and root for. And when all the major characters were dying, I didn't know who was holding on to. But it was a, it was a very grown up Kevin Smith film, and it didn't resemble Ke- Kevin Smith. I never saw Tusk. Uh, I never saw um, Cop Out. Cop Out with oh, Bruce. Oh, you were so lucky. Yeah, I, I, you know, it was a studio film. But I do like Kevin Smith. I've got a lot of time for him. Um, I'm looking forward to the reboot. But the, the thing that's held back um, Clerks 3 from being made is he never wanted to make it unless he could get everyone back. And it was uh, Jeff Anderson, who plays Randall, right. who's been holding out. Um, he was like, there's no reason for this. There's no progression of the story. But it was at a convention that they were on a and a panel. So they'd met up properly for the first time in ages and they just got on like a house on fire again and as soon as he went the idea that I've got for the Clerks 3 with your character is this and he's just gone I'm in okay and that's what's got it back on and at least to apologise for Clerks 2 he got silly though didn't he yeah he got a bit daft towards the Clerks wasn't about being daft it was a a character study and that's what I liked about it the the bits of Clerks 2 that I really enjoy is where it's inside yeah the first half inside the restaurant and then those two characters Dante and Randall just talking smack about it like about yeah. things it the whole criticism of the lord of the rings film scene yeah oh i, I totally i was with it i was with it until until that that the, the silly sequences towards the end and, yeah. and then it lost me but i'm a big kevin smith fan i love his comic work as well uh his his early run on daredevil was fantastic i like the widening gear he did with batman I'd like to see that get finished i like i like him as a writer i think he, he says something he's doing a lot of tv now he's doing um the flash doing supergirl um, so yeah, welcome it. Now I wonder if Martin Scorsese would consider Kevin Smith films as cinema. 
interesting with <laughs> Martin Scorsese's uh, comments over the last week, which have had, of course, fanboys taking to Twitter, uh, getting out of the mother's basement uh, and then straight back. portion completely. I mean, what he actually said is when asked about like Marvel films and superhero films, he said, I don't see them. I tried, you know, but that's not cinema. Honestly, the closest I can think of them, as well made as they are, with actors doing the best they can under the circumstances, is theme parks. It isn't the cinema of human beings trying to convey emotional, psychological experiences to another human being. And I can completely get that. You said Not, something interesting, which I, I, I hope you remember that you, what you said. If you had two, if you had added two words onto one section of that, that wouldn't have been an issue because everyone's hung up on the that's not cinema. If he had just added to me. Yeah. But what you have to realise, he was talking in open conversation in an interview setting. I'm pretty sure that when you're talking with your friends or anyone about anything, you occasionally like don't fill in words because you assume that the audience understands what you mean. It's not cinema to him. That's what he's saying. He's not saying it's not cinema. It's all rubbish and it should be destroyed. He just doesn't take to that type of cinema. Yeah. Everyone is allowed an opinion. Yeah. For me, Adam Sandler's not cinema, but the audiences who go to watch his films tell me otherwise. Or did. Or did. Now they'll just watch it on Netflix. Yeah. Um, Which is interesting because I'm actually excited about Adam Sandler's next film, which is uh, The Uncut Gems. Okay. Getting really good reviews. Is it? Yeah. Things you don't normally hear in a sense. It's another one of those like, oh, he can act kind of films. But uh, anyway, you know, with Scorsese, I think all the fanboys just need to, you know, just grow Calm up. Calm down. We're all allowed it's, an opinion. I, I, I'm a huge fanboy myself. We're both, we, you know, we, we, we say we, 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 we are yeah. movie geeks. Yeah. We are film geeks and we are comic book geeks. And we can understand getting passionate about something. But Scorsese wasn't disparaging everything about the films that you enjoy. He was saying they're not his cup of tea. Yeah. That's what that whole sentence sums up to. He even says, like, you know, they are well made. The actors are doing the best that they can. You know, he's not saying like, oh, James Gunn, your films are rubbish. He's saying, no, they are well made. He's not criticising the way that they present on the screen. He's just saying, I'm not going to go out my way to watch them. The, the bigger issue is that, that and, and, and fandoms become this, that, that it's very precious. You're not allowed to think outside of, of what's regulated. You know, you uh, uh, Ethan Hawke, I remember, didn't like Logan. You know, and fanboys turned on him. You're not allowed, you don't have to like everything. I'm not a big fan. Uh, people are going to be, pitchforks are going to be coming down outside my house probably now. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman take. No. I'm not a huge fan of it. It's just me. It wasn't my idea of what Batman should be. I've talked about it on on this program. We, you can't like everything. You don't have to like everything. I'm sorry. It's just the way of the world, but it doesn't stop you liking it and it doesn't take it away uh, and those movies are out there for us to enjoy. It doesn't mean you have to go and uh, burn down effigies of, of Martin Scorsese at one time. And it sounds with the reviews for The Irishman, he may be back, the, the greatest filmmaker on the planet. So, you know, just calm it down. It's his opinion. It doesn't stop you liking it. And it doesn't mean that they are bad films. I kind of agree with James Gunn. You know, I've, I've not got into Martin Scorsese's later work recently. It's mm. It's been a letdown. The silence did absolutely nothing for me. And I, I don't agree with what he's saying, but he's entitled to that opinion yeah. as you are entitled to yours. As I, he's entitled to his as I'm entitled to mine. Uh, let's just round up the news this week. I mean, we said that it's all TV news this week, but we've clearly just been talking for about 30 <laughs> yes. minutes about film news. But I would just want to touch on Bruce Campbell. Dropping um, the big bombshell that there's another Evil Dead film. With a new director. With a new director, which is going to be picking up on the 2013 
Oh, reboot, really? I didn't realise like that. Like Fede Alvarez, because he's also com- kind of confirmed that that is an official sequel yes. to the Evil Dead films. It's just a new group of people finding that cabin, because even Sam Raimi's car is still within that film. Yeah. So it's seen as that that's connected to it. It's an official sequel. Yes, it was more guttural and visceral, whereas like the Evil Dead franchise went more like slapstick comedy. Yeah, they went very broad. But if you look back at the very first Evil Dead film, it wasn't slapstick comedy. No, it was... And that's what Alvarez's film was going back to, but making it in a more bloody, like, kind of modern setting. So we're going to see a continuation of that story, which if it's set within that same universe, is officially a continuation of the Ash versus Evil Dead story at the same time. Well, it did drop Bruce Campbell at the end of it. I, I thought it was okay. Uh, I didn't see it as a as a remake. The characters weren't called anything the same. The storyline was different. Uh, it was about the cabin as, more than it was about uh, uh, being a, a reboot. It was felt like a reboot sequel, and then with 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 Campbell making that that appearance, it solidified that to me that it was that. I, I like the Evil Dead series, but yeah, people have to remember when it came out, it was seen as being very very yeah. very visceral in the UK. It was a video nasty that was yeah. banned. And there's a story for another another podcast. The whole banning of the whole of banning films. of films. You're listening to the film file with Lee and Andy, and you can reach us again. We're going to start doing this because uh, I got we got to the end of last show, and I thought we didn't do enough hashtags how to how to reach us. So you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or any other good podcast uh, supplier. So the big film out this week, and we have to talk about it. Are we we're going to try and not be spoilery? I I think that in order to properly talk about it, at some point we need to do spoilers. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about it generally as a film and then we'll have like some kind of klaxon or maybe a maniacal laugh as a spoiler Maniacal laugh seems to fit in Towards the end of this episode where we'll touch in it. So we'll basically close off the episode but then keep it open for people who want to hear our thoughts on aspects of the film, which unfortunately, because of the kind of film that it is, have to delve into spoiler territory. You know, I do stand-up comedy. You should come see a show sometime. I could do that. People think you're weird. They don't feel comfortable around you. I don't want you worrying about money, Mom. Or me. All that sacrifice, she must love you very much. She always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. (laughs) You're so funny, aren't they? So I've just seen it. You saw it a couple of days ago. You've had more time to process it. It's the film at the moment that everyone's talking about for not exactly the reasons that we thought everyone would be talking about. And it's and it's something I, I didn't see, which is this sort of uh, uh, zeitgeist of kind of what's been happening in the US with uh, white guys in particular feeling as though the, the world owes them, owes them something, going out and... and um, buying guns and wreaking havoc uh, with loss of life and a sense that society has let them down and they are angry young men. I remember the same arguments happening with Fight Club. Yeah. And at no point did I do I think that, apart from a few underground fighting clubs, that anarchy ruled the streets. And I don't think anarchy will rule the streets after this. So, Andy, talk us through the plot. So, it, it's an origin story. We're focusing purely on the joke. And, you know, the joke has been prevalent since the 50s when he was first introduced in Batman issue one. And it originally intended just a one-off character, but became so popular. But he's been redefined for every era. In this one, we've got a guy named Arthur Fleck who seems to be a bit downtrodden. He's got a mental disorder, which has... Makes him laugh maniacally. Makes him laugh in uncomfortable, nervous situations. 
which some people think is a bit weird. And so he gets taunted, he gets picked on, he gets abused. No one trusts him. He seems unliked by people. And it follows as like, you know, he gets like beaten up. He gets like victimized on subway trains until he snaps. And then it's, he snaps and he starts to realize that he enjoys the snap and he builds through. That's the surface level of the film. Yeah, just to point out that he's a, he's a clown, isn't he, at the beginning? And yeah. he's got aspirations of being a stand-up comedian, which uh, feels like those elements were taken out of Alan Moore's killing joke. Yeah. To choose our words very carefully. Well, let's talk about casting. I mean, you know... Okay, so Quiet Phoenix uh, plays Joker, and it is a phenomenal... It, his commitment to it, and the weight loss that he's gone through for the role, the contortions that he does whenever he's like... There's these beautifully shot, uh, very stylized, very slow motion sort of dance sequences that, that he that he performs, um, which are sort of cross between dancing and Tai Chi, I thought, which is purely physical performance. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful performance because it, you're watching a character that is, that is actually quite unlikable. And when you do find yourself, and you don't sympathise with him, at no point during the film I sympathise with the character, I empathised, which is a different ball game entirely. There are moments when you empathise with him. He's the, he's the complete anti-hero. And a, a lot of people have thrown their, their hankies in the air on this one because he, he's, uh, he's, a, he's a character who brings chaos. That's what the Joker does. Um, he brings murder. That's what the Joker does. And let's not forget, well, this is a movie that is... And it's heart of it, if you're staying true to what the Joker is, is a supervillain. Even though it's told in a realistic setting, it's sold in a sort of world of the, the, the 70s. What I did like from the get-go was the old Warner's uh, logo yeah, at the beginning of the screen, that rather bright, that the bright red background yeah, with the black the w. Old, which reminded me of. of uh, Interesting as well. Up. Every other film based on a comic book property is then followed by like the logo representative of the company. Yeah, the DC, no logo DC logo doesn't appear until the very end of the end credits. Right, they made it clear that this is not a connected tissue yeah. to the DCEU. It doesn't fit into any of the current dc continuity it's a film on its own and this is where it's it's very bold it, it tells a story about a character that that isn't related to the dc universe and we've spoken about this on the show that that's that was dc's biggest mistake was was trying to to force start, everything together yeah to force it into into a universe the way that marvel did it and tried to go down the steps that marvel did it instead of warner's taking control and saying this is a film that we've created it should stand alone it's a superman film it's a batman film uh, and clearly the audience didn't want that connected tissue that they got from Marvel. And it stands out on its own. It looks amazing. It's shot in this very 70s way. 70s filmmaking is, is my favourite period. So and it captures that perfectly. It has that feel of Scorsese's Mean Streets. It's very Scorsese-esque a lot of the way through from, from that particular period. Taxi Driver springs instantly to mind. King of Comedy uh, uh, springs instantly to mind. It's uh, the films that they used to make, funny enough, where the anti-hero, like Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver, were the lead characters. Uh, the same sort of uh, condemnation for it from, from much more superior critiques than, than ourselves uh, failed, to, failed to draw on. This was a time where there was a cinema was like this. It did present interesting characters who you didn't necessarily like. Um, half a dozen spring to mind from that particular period. That's what I loved about it. That's what I really like. It's a very mature direction from Todd Phillips, and it's a far cry yes, from his um, frappable humour yeah. um, of the past. Definitely benefited by his continuing work with Lauren Sher, the cinematographer, yeah. 
It like, looks amazing. As bad as the Hangover films got by the third one, they still look beautiful. In fact, that was my problem with the Hangover films, that they were they were drama-looking instead of comedy-looking. Yeah. Do, does that make sense to you? I think, I think the first one was a, a lot like more comedy feel throughout it. But yeah, the second and third ones, I mean, by the third one, the, I hardly laughed watching it. Yeah. And it wasn't because the jokes weren't funny. It's because the jokes weren't there. Yeah. It was a very dark, twisted yeah. way to finish the trilogy. Yeah, and they and it looks like um, but, they looked like great cinematic films. I mean, but, with Love and Share, I mean, I only realised when like looking up like his previous work, he was just, he was just the cinematographer on one of my favourite films of the past few decades, Garden State. Oh, I love Garden what State. What an amazing film! Like I mean, the, the, every imagery bit of imagery him stood with the shirt against the wall is yeah. just a great shot because he's off to the side, and that is evidence of like how skillful Love and Share is of getting like a beautiful looking shot. And in Joker, I think it's I think it's a masterpiece of cinematography. It's it is, it is an amazing looking film. I like the I like the time period for it. This this sort of uh, end of the seventies, beginning of the eighties, uh, and it definitely is a time period. You look at the cars uh, they go to the cinema, and uh, I noticed cinema po- uh, poster for the for the film Wolfen yeah. was up there, so it instantly gives it a, a time period. So that's what I, I really liked about it. The, the performances are great. Robert De Niro's in it. He's playing almost uh, uh, Rupert Pumpkin, uh, Pumpkin again from uh, King, King Comedy, Comedy, who's now got his own talk show. I think trying to tie it into DC, into the DC folklore, was the thing that let it down for me. There's a portrayal of uh, Thomas Wayne, who, who uh, Batman fans will know as, as Bruce Wayne's father. There's a, a storyline with a very young Bruce Wayne in it. I am starting to edge into spoiler territory, but we'll come back to that at the end of the episode. Uh, and those were the things that, that I, I felt more uncomfortable. I was more, more interested when it was a standalone film yeah. than having to tie into, yes, it's set in Gotham. Yes, it, it does tie a little bit into, uh, in, into the DC universe. Those were the more bigger letdowns for me. Didn't like the portrayal of Thomas Wayne. I didn't think that's what I believe Thomas Wayne to be. And if it has, it didn't encroach into that into those properties. I, I didn't need that to yeah. make it interesting. Um, as an overall film, it's a, it's a very visceral film. I don't think it's going to incite riots. Certainly not in this country. So I don't think that disenfranchisement, disenfranchised yeah, feel. I think that the old controversies that it's going to glamorise violence, it doesn't glamorise violence. No, when the violence doesn't. comes, it's brutal, it's shocking and it jolts you. Yeah, it doesn't uh, make you go, wow, that was cool. Yeah. It makes you go, oh, wow. Though um, there's a scene oh. on the subway train which leads to violence that, interestingly enough, I was caught up in the character to, to want him to fight back. Yeah. Uh, and and that surprised me. It's a it's a very adult film. It's not uh, it's not a Batman movie in the in the way that that one would expect a Batman movie, and especially in in light of where Marvel have taken their characters and and, and recently DC have taken their characters. Uh, and for that, it, it needs to be applauded. It's a very very interesting take on a character. And we've been talking about this for ages. How can you make a Joker movie without mentioning Batman? Well, you can. Yeah. Quite simply, and it's all there on the screen. Uh, with fantastic performance, with a very, very uh, gritty film. It does stray occasionally in, into pretentious, but I'm okay with that because I'd rather they be bold than to uh, uh, than to, to be fearful of, of stepping into territory, which uh, so far no comic book, mainstream comic book movie has stepped into. With the controversies, I mean, there's been reports of like cinemas in the US that have had police presence outside. FBI giving a warning about yeah. it. 
AMC cinemas, there have been a few of them reported that they had signs up saying no one's to be allowed admittance on their own. Everyone has to come with other people. Really? Because they're that afraid of like lone idiots. That's not representative to me of the power of the, this film itself. That's representative of the society that we live in. That's at a the really moment. good point. I, yeah, I think you've and, answered that perfectly. And whereas like, people often say that art imitates life, well, and life imitates art. This is a true case of the art imitating life, is that what the Joker film is representing is the environment that we're living in at the moment. And anything that you're worried about that film containing, it's actually happening on your streets at the moment, and you should be more worried about that than what a work of fiction can do yeah and this is the thing that like about the joker as a character there's no definitive joker everyone is representative of the times that you live in uh, you see people say like Heath Ledger the definitive joker well he was for that moment in time yeah I think Joaquin Phoenix is the definitive joker for the moment in time because yeah. he's reflecting the troubles of our society it's a hard film to discuss in detail without dropping into spoiler territory it's a film that sits with you after you watch it, you don't just finish watching it and go, way, let's go and get a burger. You sit in your journey home in complete silence as you're processing elements of the film. Yeah, you it's, will discuss this. It's powerful. It's stunning. There's ways that you can interpret uh, interpret moments in the film in different ways. And it's a film that provokes discussion. To me, that, that, should, be, that should overwrite any controversies simply because anything that provokes discussion can only be a good thing. And this has been said before. This was said with Taxi Driver that it would uh, that it would incite violence and vigilantism. It was said with Falling Down, which I think this film is very very close to yeah. in its essence. They said it with Fight Club, which we mentioned earlier. They say it with lots and lots of films. I, I don't believe there's that correlation. If somebody is going to, you know, there was that guy who opened fire in a screening of, of uh, Dark Knight Rises, Rises, dressed as, as as a Joker type character. Now, if some nut job is going to go out. And let's be honest, if, you, if you're thinking of, of, of harming other people, you're a nut job. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know if there's a, a, a more PC term for it. If you're going to go out and harm people and you think you're influenced by a movie, then it's a very, very shorthand way to, to, to write off mental illness or, or problems within a society. I don't think we'll get any, anything like this in the UK. I hope I'm wrong. But and I'm pretty sure that I'm wrong. I don't think we have that correlation. You can. Uh, President Trump recently made a correlation between video games and violence. Uh, it's no, it's much more of a society problem. People can find triggers in all sorts of things. If they're going to find a trigger out of this movie, it's too grown up a movie for mass consumption. Uh, I saw it in a, in a packed theatre. But it's a grown-up movie, and you could see, you can tell when people are coming to see one thing, and it's not, and you start to feel, oh, start to hear shuffling a little bit because it's not a, this is not a comic book movie, but it's inspired by a comic book story. And the thing about the Joker is there is not one defined origin story. No, for e that character, every time that he's reinterpreted, it's a different origin, and you never know what the true origin of the Joker ever was. Yeah. And I love the fact that it just represents whatever age we live in. And yeah. they keep redefining them. In the comics, they just keep mashing the universes together in like various crises and yeah. flashpoints and things like that in order to correct any continuity issues. I don't want to know a definitive origin. No, I love having be. interpretations. And uh, again, there'll be more on that in the spoilers. Okay, should we get into spoiler territory? Well, uh, sound the alarm. <laughs> Okay, we're in spoiler territory. If you want to keep listening, please do. Uh, if you're interested to hear what we talk about, then we are going to mention some key plots uh, and a little bit of a spoilery, uh, spoiler givers. We're not going to blow the movie for you. So the big key elements for the film for me 
is at about three quarters of the way through the film, there's a revelation that a relationship that he's been in with his neighbour, who he'd like, he met, like, they bumped into a few times, then the she came to the door and said, you've been stalking me, and they arranged a date, they went on a date, and it's a happy romance, and he's got some happiness in his life. He imagined the whole thing. At that point, I realised that the whole film is the Joker's narrative to justify all of his actions. Right. Which makes you go back to the early moments when you were sympathising with him because he was getting, like, a billboard stolen off him. He chases the kids who got it, and then they beat him up. Was that billboard stolen? Because his boss was told by the shop owner that he just walked off with the billboard. So maybe he did a fight club on himself, and he creates this false reality around him. There's the key moments, like, which is the start of the killings on the subway that starts all this violence and, like, uprising against the rich. We're led to believe, by the way it's shot and the way it's shown, that it was a reaction to being beaten up by three rich guys who were drunk and, like, picking on him because he was dressed as a clown. Now that we have this whole thing of, like, you have to question everything, maybe that didn't happen that way round, and he actually confronted them and just murdered someone on the subway. Every element of the film needs to be re-scrutinised. And at that point, he's no longer... I mean, you mentioned anti-hero. He can be seen as an anti-hero. On the surface level, you can see it as an anti-hero uprising. But when you start to go, oh, wow, we have to doubt everything that he's told us to this point. He's no longer an anti-hero. He's the criminal psychotic of Joker that has always been a criminal psychotic in every representation. Absolutely. The only... There's Sorry, a reason he always gets locked in Arkham Asylum. He's criminally psychotic. He's mentally unstable. He's deranged and he thinks that he's doing good things. He's clearly not. Anyone, there's people who are like saying like, you know, he's, you know, I can relate to him. If you can relate to this character, I really am concerned about you and you need to go and seek help because he kills people indiscriminately. You don't see some deaths, but they're suggested. Mm. There's some assaults that are suggested. He's not a nice character by the time at the end of the film comes when you look back on how he's actually acted and put it into a different context. There's um, suggestions towards the end of the film that he's just stopped taking his medication. However, any moments that we see with him playing with his medication early in the film, you never see him take the medication. You just see him playing with empty bottles and two pills. How how many years has he just been playing with two pills? He's been off the deep end since before the film began. And that's how I've started to perceive it. I can't wait to go back and rewatch the film from that context and start to see the different ideals that you can get from it. Yeah, you know, I might be completely wrong, but um, I, I picked this up as soon as like I'd watched it. And that was what I was processing in the taxi home after watching it. And then the next day went online and found other people theorizing the same thing. Mm. And it seemed that whole scene with him, the relationship being false has to have been put there for that very reason to get you to suddenly go. This narrative is skewed. I The elements I did like is... is... The, the Joker is an agent of chaos, and, and that came out of it. And I almost wanted to see that expanded. I was more... I'd, I'd have been more interested in, in, in seeing building up the, the movement that, that follows him or, or follows the Joker. But it is about disenfranchisement, uh, disenfranchised people finding a way out. Now, the Joker, for me, wasn't the clown prince of crime, which no. he, he should be for a Joker. But this is is, is the point of the movie. It's an interpretation you know, these aren't gospels. <laughs> they are uh, an artist's interpretation of, of that character. And that was what was bold about it. 
for the the film does have faults, and for the faults it does have, you cannot get away from the fact that they have tried to do something absolutely unique with with this character, and therefore unique with with comic book movies. At the heart of it, it is a comic book movie. It's a, it's a character that we've grown up with. He's the most recognizable villain that uh, a supervillain out out of all, the whole of comics. He's the one. He's he's had so many different interpretations. Uh, the 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 look of him, the fact that he he is chaos, is is the uh, antithesis of, of who Batman is. He is the most recognizable supervillain. You can put any villain in front of uh, in front of my mom, and she will pick out the Joker. So I I'm I think it's a very very bold film. Doesn't always work for me. Uh, there's the elements that I'm I'm uh, I have to think about. Uh, as I said, I've only just walked out of a screen. Yeah, you've not had a to sell um, me. So a lot of what I'm talking about is I'm free-forming here, folks. But um, it, it's 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 a definitely a strong film. I think there are Oscar nominations uh, that should be in, in the pipeline for Waquian Phoenix's performance and I think for Todd Phillips. Interested to know what other people think about it. Get in touch with us uh, via our Twitter page or email us. It's, a, it's an interesting, very, very bold film. And I don't think, as far as I'm I'm aware... There has been a mainstream comic book property which has been dealt with in such a way. I know one of the problems that you had was regards to the representation of Thomas Wayne. Yeah. Who's portrayed within this film as being a bit of a dick, a rich, yeah. a rich dick who looks down on the people below him. There's like a little like news clip in of him like talking about like the lower classes as clowns. However, again, drawing reference to that this is Arthur's skewed perspective, maybe that wasn't actually what was said. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's, a, there's a bit at the start of the film where it becomes a fantasy. Where he step in, steps he into is in the audience of a game show and it plays out. So maybe every time that he sees something, he imagines something different. Yeah, because you know the the comic book history, the film history, everything history wise that we've ever seen seen about Thomas Wayne is that he was a really good benefactor towards like the homeless, the disenfranchised. He put money into the community to rebuild elements of Gotham. He was always looking towards like people like with less wealth than him and going, I've got more wealth than I need. I'm going to invest in you guys. I want you. He'd, rec- he'd hire people from like poor impoverished societies and try to give them a better way of life. And that's the Thomas Wayne that we've always been told. So to suddenly see him in this jarring context, I mean, it initially jarred me. Mm. And I was like, I, I don't like this. The, no, I didn't. This, this is stepping on the toes of like what's been established. But like I say, it was when that revelation came and I started to question what I'd seen up to that point. I was like, right. So basically, Arthur and his mother have been harassing this guy for years, and we don't know to what extent they've been doing it. We just know they're banned from communication with the Wayne family because his mother had some fantasy obsession um, Mm. that she had bore his child. There's so much to then go back and reanalyze, and that's why that second watch needs to be done. Yeah, I totally agree. I will see it again. I I think, you know, like I said, it's a film that makes you question things. It's a film that makes you think, and it's a film that provokes discussion, and everyone will have their own interpretation of it. I never want them to do a sequel. No, I hope they don't. Uh, there's no room for a sequel. Joaquin Phoenix has said that, like him and Todd Phillips, have talked about, like you know, working together and possibly like delving into the Joker again. Don't that yeah, Joker tale is a set standalone. We don't want it running the risk of being diminished by explaining too much. It's a film that leaves questions. It's a film that gets your brain chewing it over. If they in the next film go, well, actually, this is what happened. Oh well, you've just blown the film. Yeah, you've got to. You, I don't. I can't see where they can take the character on the basis of what we've seen. I never say never, but uh, from what what I've seen so far, I can't see without getting into the other territory of because it, it, there is a set off point for uh, for Bruce Wayne's story, which was a surprise. And and 
again, slightly unwelcome for me. I'd rather it seemed be more self-contained. The fact that it was set in Gotham was just enough. Arkham Asylum's mentioned. But at some point, you have to, if you're going to carry on with this character as the way it's perceived in this film, you know, you are, you you will tiptoe into other elements of, of the Batman legend. And I, I'd rather not. I'd rather see it uh, stand alone. I've seen random theories thrown out um, that, you know, because Bruce Wayne's quite young in this, that, you know, if this is the Joker that he goes against, then this Joker's going to be like in his late 70s by the time he's fighting yeah, Batman. Yeah, yeah. But I've seen people suggest that, well, this is a character that inspires the Joker. The yeah, I could see against. that. And I've also seen a, a theory that the only real element of this film is the very last scene in Arkham when he's talking to the psychiatrist. And the rest of it is all his fictional account of how he got into asylum. I could see that as well. And, I th- I, you know, I, this is, again, why I want to rewatch it, because I want to see whether that actually stands up to scrutiny, because that would give an interesting take. Because that would make sense with the Joker, is that, like... Well, I'm locked in here for false reasons. Good. I'm going to leave it there, folks. Uh, what we do at the end of every programme, I ask Andy what neat thing he's seen, done, played with. I'll rephrase that. <laughs> played over the, last, uh, over the last couple of weeks. Anything? Last night, went to a smashing gig by a band who'd been around for just around a year. Sheffield-based band. They've been gigging solidly across Europe and the UK pretty much consistently. They've made a lot of festival things. I was first aware of them last Christmas when I went to the Joe Carnell Jr. Christmas Knees Up gig, which is always a great night out. Uh, Sophie and the Giants. When I first saw them, me and my mate, as soon as they're halfway through their first track, we were just like, these are amazing. So I went home and like checked out the, the small three or four tracks that they'd already released by that point. I was like, yeah, I really like them. And I've been like really like pushing and promoting them, putting their music into the playlists at work quite frequently, getting people like, oh, what's this? What's this? So bringing more and more. I saw them earlier this year in a small, very like cozy gig at like above like a music shop, which had about 20 or 30 people in it. Last night at Leadmill, they had a substantial crowd. Great. I love and it when a band comes They are really out. starting to like build that momentum. If you've never found, like, check them out, just go, go onto Twitter and just find their account. Just search for Sophie and the Giants. Go onto your Spotify's, your Google Play, whatever you use, search for them. Check out their music. My brother-in-law, like, when he first checked out the music, he went, oh, well, it's okay, but I don't quite get it. When he saw them live last night, he gets it. The lead singer, Sophie, she's got an amazing voice, such a vocal range and so powerful. And you can see, watching them live, this is a band who enjoy what they're doing. They are really into it. They love it. I also discovered last night, because I bought some more merchandise from them, the the T-shirt that I bought last time that I was wearing last night, they only made about 20-odd of them. So I've actually got a rare T-shirt, because I had a few people like in the audience like, where'd you get that T-shirt from? <laughs> oh, long-term fan, been with them for a while. It's like, oh, did they do that anymore? Don't think so. So cool. it's like Sophie and the Giants. Sophie and the Giants. Get them checked out. They're, you heard they're, it here first. They're, they're going to be the next big thing. I think we're going to be hearing a lot about them over the next year. Fantastic. I'm going to mention uh, a trailer that I've seen um, for El Camino, which is uh, coming to Netflix in the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, And it's a Breaking Bad movie, and it follows what happened to Jesse Pinkman after the end of the the last episode of Breaking Bad. From the trailer, I I got nothing from it, which is exactly what a good trailer should be. It it made me excited. Jesse Pinkman was, was the interesting arc well, they were all interesting arts in Breaking Bad, but I'd like to see where he's ended up. Um, is it a revenge thriller? I don't know. It's just one of those. But I'm, I'm so so happy to be back in the world of Breaking Bad. I love Better Call Saul. I, I, I think what they've done was a really bold 
left of centre move on, on, on exploring that character. And then the writing uh, is as up there with elements of, of Breaking Bad. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the return of Jesse Pinkman. So that's El Camino. The, the trailer's out. It's coming soon to Netflix. I'm really excited for that. I mean, before Better Call Saul came out, there was the whole like, oh, do we really need Yeah, do we need a spin-off? Uh, but that's showing that they'll only do it if there's a really good reason, a good story to tell. So I've got no doubt that this is going to be a good continuation of the story because they wouldn't have just rushed into doing it for no, no reason at all. Not Great at all. shout. Excellent. Okay, so this has been The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. You can find us on Twitter at... Film File UK. Get in touch with us. Let us know your thoughts. Subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. Tell anybody you meet in the street and laugh maniacally when you do it. <laughs>